Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. Hi, this is Melanie Hempy, and I hope everyone is just doing great today. We're so glad that you're here. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, welcome back. I'm just thrilled to be able to have Leonard Sachs back on um, today, the author of The Collapse of Parenting. Leonard is a practicing physician and a psychologist and has been a speaker for so many years on this topic of kids in screens. And when I first got his book, I have it here in my hands and I'm looking through it. And um, Dr. Sachs, this book is dog-eared on every page. So it's really hard for me to figure out what, how we can tackle this in just an hour. So the first portion of this interview was last week or a couple weeks ago. So part one, if you're joining us today, you'll, you'll need to get back and listen to part one. Today, we're going to be discussing part two. And the title for part two is Solutions. So welcome, welcome, Dr. Sachs. So glad to have you back. Thanks for having me back. What we're going to start with today, as I flip through and look at part two, I think one of the biggest things that I got initially out of your book, and many people know my story, I have four children, my oldest was really struggling with gaming addiction, and then we took a different path with our other three kids. And when I got your book, I remember thinking so clearly that finally, there's someone out there that really understands the myths because there's a lot of myths that parents have. And I think the biggest myth around screens is this whole idea of what you call in your book, um, teaching virtue. And we don't teach virtue to our kids by preaching it to them. We teach virtue by requiring virtuous behavior. That sounds so simple and yet it's super profound. Talk about that for a second and then we're gonna talk about the misconceptions. Well, it's a challenge. So researchers interviewed American teenagers nationwide and one of the questions they asked was, do you think that you're uh, uh, average in terms of your moral behavior, doing the right thing? Do you think you're below average? Do you think you're above average? Well, the great majority of American uh, high school kids on the order of 80% said that they were above average in morality. And then in the same interview, the researchers asked these kids, "Um, is it okay to cheat on a test? Uh, Have you cheated on a test? And again, uh, more than than 80% of the high school kids said, yeah, I I cheat on tests. Everybody cheats, you know, that's, that's pretty much normal. And these high school kids don't seem to recognize a contradiction between saying, I'm above average in morality. Mm -hmm. I am more moral than the average kid I know, and I cheat on tests. Wow. We actually have good data going back decades uh, in terms of how American uh, teenagers have regarded cheating and self-reports of cheating, as well as objective reports of cheating. And what all this research tells us and again, I present this research at some length in, in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is that there has been an explosion in cheating in the United States over mm. the past 30 years. 30 years ago, cheating was uncommon, was the exception rather than the rule. And it was the lowest performing kids who were cheating. Uh, the kids who were not doing well were cheating as a desperate measure to pass the course. Mm. That's no longer the case. Uh, cheating has become very widespread. Uh, in American schools, and this is true across the board. It is now true at the most elite schools. 
Uh, there was a cheating scandal at Harvard not long ago. Uh, and it is now the case that the most successful kid, the, the kids in the top quintile of academic achievement, are now just as likely or more likely to cheat than kids in the bottom quintile because these top kids are, uh, are telling researchers, hey, uh, everyone else is cheating. I don't want to be disadvantaged. I want to get into a highly selective college. And if I don't cheat, then I'm putting myself at a disadvantage. It's, it, it, is, it is merely rational for me to cheat. Now, why did this happen and where is it coming from? Well, as you know, Melanie, I've been a family doctor for more than 30 years. Uh, and I can tell you from firsthand observation that as recently as 20 years ago, it was common for American parents to say things like, I'd rather you get a C on the test honestly than cheat to get an A. Today, that's much less common. Today, it is much more common for American parents to say things like, hey, you want to get into Stanford? You want to get into MIT? You got to have incredible grades because you're not just competing against American kids anymore. You can compete against kids from Asia and Europe. You got to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the factors driving this explosion in cheating. Parents are not teaching virtue. Now, how do you teach virtue? Well, you do have to talk the talk. You do have to tell kids, I'd rather you get a C on the test honestly than cheat and get an A. But you also have to walk the walk. If you are at the same time saying, hey, the most important thing in the world is to get into Stanford or Princeton, then you're contradicting yourself. The message has to go all the way down. It has to soak all the way through. Mm-hmm. And you have to say, hey, if everyone else is cheating and you're not, and as, as a result, you're at a competitive disadvantage and therefore less likely to get into Stanford or Princeton, that's okay. Yeah, Getting into Stanford or Princeton is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to be a good person, to do the right thing. And again, as I show in the book, there's been a change in American culture. Uh, And again, researchers at UCLA have quantified this. They looked at the most popular TV shows in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today. And they found that from the 60s through the 90s, the most popular TV shows were communicating the message that what's really important is to do the right thing, even if it hurts, even if it means you're going to lose. That's okay, because doing the right thing is the most important thing. And that was true in the Andy Griffith show in the 1960s and Family Ties in the 1980s. It's not true today. Today, the most popular TV shows are communicating the message that winning, being famous, is the most important thing. You know, on shows like Survivor, if you do the right thing, you're going to get voted off the island. Yeah. (laughs) You got to be willing to cheat and lie. Oh, my, yeah. And betray your allies in order to win. And that is now applauded. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's what I mean when I say that American culture has become a toxic culture. It's a Mm -hmm. culture that now teaches kids that what really matters is fame and wealth. Uh, And American culture is now saturated with really bad role models. That's what kids encounter. Kids are online, just surfing the most popular videos on YouTube or TikTok. They're going to encounter people like Jojo Siwa. I mean, it's now common when you ask adolescent girls, what do you want to be? What's your, what's your dream? They say, I want to be the next Jojo Siwa. And parents have no idea who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. This 17-year-old girl in Nebraska 
who is a huge internet celebrity with more than 40 million followers across Instagram and TikTok, mm-hmm. who got her start with a not very good video four years ago that went viral. Mm-hmm. And girls look at that and they'll say, I'm more talented than she is. I'm prettier than she is. I'm funnier than she is. Mm -hmm. So I'll make a video and I'll have 100 million followers. Mm -hmm. No one has explained to them that there's randomness in what video goes viral. And even the experts cannot explain to you why one uh, video goes viral on TikTok and another fizzles. Uh, and mm-hmm. the one that fizzles could be funnier and more professional than the one that goes viral. Right. There's randomness here. And when I speak at a church, I'll often clo- quote Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. The race is not to the swift, nor riches to men of understanding, but time and chance comes to us all. Time and chance. Why is one person famous on Instagram and the other person isn't? Chance. There's no reason to it. And for every one Jojo Siwa, there's a million or more girls out there who are cranking out their YouTube videos, their TikTok videos, and it's going nowhere. And this, I think, is one reason, getting back to some of the topics you and I talked about previously, the more time girls spend trying to prepare videos for TikTok and Instagram, the more likely they are to be anxious and depressed. Because you put all that time, all that effort into creating that video. And after two weeks, you've got 51 views and a couple negative comments. Despair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. what is important. And you're immersed in a culture, the culture of Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus and Cardi B uh, that is teaching kids that being rich and famous is the most important thing. And you thought your great video would make you rich and famous and it's didn't. Well, and I want, I want people really to understand what you're, you're saying here that the reason why kids, girls and boys, mostly girls, when we look at the stats, the reason why they're getting so depressed and anxious is because they are shooting for a target that is constantly shifting. It's moving. There's no way they're really going to be able to hit the target up on their own accord, so to speak. It's going to be like you said, this, this timing and this chance is all involved. So seriously, it's like having a dart in your hand and trying to shoot the dartboard and the dartboard is constantly moving. By the time the dart leaves your hand, the dartboard is in a different place. And that is very depressing for a young girl who's sort of hitching all of her identity to this experience. So Dr. Sachs, we as parents um, just have so many misconceptions and and I did I, I you know when I was new into this whole arena of managing my kids screens and just parenting in the digital age we bring a lot of biases and blind spots I like to call them um, in your book you call them misconceptions I love that so today we're going to talk about seven of these things and we're just going to kind of run through and just hear your thoughts on some of the most common ones and I'm going to start with this misconception of rebounding. Um, We like to call this the forbidden fruit, maybe misconception, but the idea that if I force my kids to be virtuous, then when they go to college, you know, and they're on their own, they're going to do crazy things. I know we, we touched on this one a little bit in our last show, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on it. 
this sort of informs our parenting style a little bit. And parents tend to think that strict parenting will result in this rebounding effect. So talk about that just for a minute. Well, absolutely. As it relates to screens, especially when you let American kids do whatever they want to do, uh, what researchers find American boys most want to do with their free time is play video games. What American adolescent girls most want to do with their free time is go on social media. But that's not good. You want your kid to be more fulfilled, to find something more meaningful than social media and video games. And that means you have to limit and in some cases eliminate uh, kids' uh, use of social media and video games. Mm -hmm. And then parents will uh, give what, what you might call the rebound argument. They'll say, well, if I force my kid to be behave virtuously by limiting the amount of time that they spend on social media or video games, uh, then when they go off to college and I'm not around to enforce any kind of rules, won't they rebound? Won't they, uh, you know, isn't it better just to let, to, to let them make choices now and, and okay, maybe they'll spend a little bit too much time on social media and video games, but doesn't that decrease the risk of them rebounding and going off the deep end at college? Okay, well, that's an empirical question and we have an answer. We have researchers who've followed uh, American kids from the high school years into the college years. And what the researchers find is that when kids have permissive parents, and that's the term you have to use, mm -hmm. parents who let kids uh, do pretty much what they want to do on screens, whether it's social media or video games, those kids develop bad habits. They develop the habit of spending an hour or two or three every day playing their video game or looking on social media or posting on social media. Once those habits are formed, What's the likelihood that when this kid goes to college, they're going to leave those habits and develop better habits and spend that time studying rather than screens? That The odds are very low. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you require virtuous behavior, which I argue is your job as a parent for a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, or a 17-year-old, and you say, I'm, I'm going to limit your access to social media. I'm going to limit how much time you spend playing video games. And again, there's a variety of ways to do this. You can do a complete prohibition or you can use various software to limit the time. Mm -hmm. But there has to be some limit. We can argue about whether it's 40 minutes a day or zero minutes a day, but it must. there must be a limit. And, and that recommendation is grounded in good evidence because again, these longitudinal cohort studies where researchers follow these kids from uh, ninth grade or eighth grade to 10th grade to 12th grade to the college years, the kids who have limits when they go to college are more likely to retain those limits. Habits are robust. So one rule I absolutely advise parents is no screens until all the homework is done and all the chores are done. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you want to insist on a rule of no social media or 30 minutes of social media the rule still has to be no social media until all the chores are done and all the homework is done. You inculcate that habit. You inculcate a virtuous habit that you work before play. You mm -hmm. get your homework done before you do uh, whatever else you're going to do. Once that habit is established, the kid is more likely to hold on to it. 
Mm -hmm. So the notion of rebound, again, uh, parents will seize on a story they saw on the internet, but that's why research is important. You can always find any story to support whatever narrative you want to push. Right. But when you look at the research and you look at uh, studies following large number of adolescents, you can say with confidence that adolescents whose parents have put strict guidelines in place to create virtuous habits, work before play, no screen time until the chores are done and the homework is done, that those kids do better at university mm-hmm. than parents who have said, yeah, I think, I think good parenting means letting kids decide. I'm going to let my 13-year-old decide what's best for her. And she might make some mistakes, but uh, you know, good parenting means letting kids decide. Well, good parenting doesn't mean letting kids decide. <laughs> that, that is simply a false statement. Mm-hmm. And I, I defend that conclusion at great length. That's kind of what the whole book is about. That uh, this contemporary American notion that good parenting means letting kids decide in every domain is a collapse of parenting. It's a dereliction of duty. It's parents not doing what they ought to do. Right. No, that's great. That's a great answer to that. That is probably the biggest myth or frustration I think that parents have is they, they're playing the tape forward in their own head and they think that my kids are going to go to college and binge and go crazy when really they're going to go to college and continue the habits many of the habits that you've established. So the second misconception we're going to talk about says, I'm worried that my child will be an outcast if he isn't allowed to play video games or if she's not allowed to have a smartphone or social media. And I'm worried they're going to be unpopular. So (laughs) have at it. I do that all the time. And it reflects a deeper confusion on the part of American parents, which is that American parents many of them, uh, now believe that your kids' friendships with same-age peers, with kids their own age, is the most important priority. Mm. It's not. And it should not be. I'm not saying same-age peers are bad. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're great. They're a part of a healthy childhood. But they can't be the most important thing. The most important thing is the kid's relationship to their parents. And the parent-child relationship must take higher priority than the kid's relationship with same-age peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and parents are concerned. They're like, oh my gosh, if I limit my daughter's time on social media, or if I don't let her have social media, she's going to be a total outcast because all the girls at her school are on Instagram and TikTok. Okay, I can speak from firsthand experience to that one because my daughter was attending a school and had, had been at what was, what is a very highly regarded uh, school um, in the, uh, Philadelphia's main line. And all the girls there are on Instagram and TikTok. And that was true. Uh, girls were on social media at lunch and in car line. And my daughter was the only one who wasn't. Now, will they be ostracized? Well, often not. I was talking to a a parent in a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah, who took her daughter's phone from her, Uh, not as a punishment, but because she was concerned about the way her daughter was spending every free moment on the phone. Mm -hmm. And mom was concerned that her daughter would be ostracized because all the other girls are spending all their time on their phone. 
But the girls didn't have a problem. The girls were like, well, you know her. She's the one with the weird mom who took her phone away. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So she wasn't ostracized. But even if she is, it's not the end of the world. Right. And this is an important point. If kids' primary attachment is to their parents, they will be robust. They will be resilient. Mm-hmm. And if other kids don't like them, it's not that big a deal because my parents love me. Right. But if same-age peers are the most important thing in your world, if, you're, if your self-concept stands or falls based on whether or not your friends at school like you, then you are very fragile because the, the peer relations are contingent and ephemeral, uh, meaning that what 14-year-olds think of other 14-year-olds can change overnight. And you can be, go from the, being the most popular girl to being the odd girl out in one day. And every girl knows it. Well, on our challenge, um, we recommend that parents find two or three other families to do the challenge together yeah. for this very yeah, yeah. reason that you have just a small little tribe or village, <laughs> you know, we like to call it. So your kid isn't the only one, but even if they are, you know what? And they're usually not, they, they usually aren't the only one. They will come and yeah. tell you that they'll say, Oh, I'm the only one mom, but you'll find other like-minded families and parents pretty easily. And, and what I want to say is even if there is a, a season where there is some angst around this, it goes by really quickly. And I feel like, you know, um, middle school is the hardest for sure. I, I can say just from our boots on the ground and from my own personal experience with all the families I work with in our own home, it does seem like middle school is the hardest. So if you can just make it through that, then this whole idea of this popularity thing um, really starts to go away a little bit more in high school. But the, the next myth ties right into this one. It is a myth that says if my child doesn't have a phone or if my son can't play video games, that they just won't have any friends. Mm-hmm. I know this is a myth. Can you explain why this is a myth? I know from my own personal experience, and again, with the eight years that I've worked with families, this is such a big myth, but it is a big fear that parents have that their kids, not only they, they won't be popular, they'll be an outcast. That's one thing. But this myth is they just won't have any friends. Talk about that a second. Well, I encourage parents to nurture other ways for uh, kids to build friendships. So I'm very glad that my daughter's closest friend right now is a girl who loves to crochet with her mm-hmm. uh, and sew with her and knit with her. And so when they're together, um, they're sewing or knitting or crocheting. There are no screens yeah. involved. <laughs> yeah. I mean, human life is varied and rich. There's lots of things that kids can do with one another that don't require a screen. Uh, and if kids have trouble coming up with something, you can give them a nudge, you can give yes. them a push. There are, I mean, look, these none of these screens existed uh, 20 years ago, and <laughs> kids have had friendships forever. Yeah, good there's friends. Lots of things that kids can do together without a screen. And yeah. uh, usually they can figure that out on their own. If they need some help, you can yeah. give them a, a push. Well, I think that in my experience, I have seen, and I would love to see one day research on this, but in my experience, I've seen that kids that are not primarily living in their virtual world um, have better friends because they're doing things in the real world. They're playing out 
side, they're creating things to do, they're making games, they're playing board games, they're experiencing all these vast different things together, as opposed to the very narrow, isolating sort of dark screen world. And of course, the very nature of the screen world is that they're not face to face. So in my experience, I have seen that kids who exclusively live on their screens, um, you know, and vicariously through all their social media, they're the ones that have fewer friends. Uh, the kids who are on that less tend to be more varied in their friendships and deeper in their friendships. They really know people better. And that just makes common sense too. Well, I've argued this issue with many teens in recent years, and I know that they would push back on what you just said. They would say, Hey, I've got, I've got 500 friends on, <laughs> on Instagram and TikTok, yeah. but they're really misunderstanding the word friend. And just because you've got 500 people looking at your Instagram or following you on, on TikTok, those aren't friends. That's not someone you're going to be able to confide in when you hit a rough patch or when a family member dies or when your parents are in financial difficulty. Your, your quote, friends on Instagram or on Facebook or on TikTok uh, won't be there for you. Right. Uh, you don't have that. It's, it's all surface. It's all about the performance. Uh, right. And, and they don't understand that two real friends who you spend time with face to face, whom you can confide in are worth more than 10,000 friends online. Yes, that is such an incredible point. And I think every parent should take this very seriously, their job to teach their children how to have friends and how to be a good friend. And you're right. Only, you know, I tell my boys all the time, if you have even one good friend your whole life, you are blessed. You are richer than most because that friendship takes a tremendous amount of time and sacrifice in, um, in order to get to the, the depth of that brotherly type of friendship, you know, that I'm talking about with them. And that's really the biggest gift that you can give your kids is the time and the space and the runway to develop that kind of a friend, not the number, the sheer number of the 500 people following well, you. Yeah, you mentioned media. number. And I can tell you, kids are competitive. Yes. And girls are competitive uh, and boys are competitive. And if Emily has 300 followers on yeah. Instagram, then I want to have 500. Yeah. And if Emily has 500, then I want to have 1,000. Yeah. And th this is absolutely true of girls. It's true of boys. And the parent has to step in mm -hmm. and recognize that that kind of competitiveness is toxic mm -hmm. because you will never win. There will always be people who have more than you have. And if that's how you, that's where you find your self-concept, that's where you find your meaning, you will never rest. You will always be anxious. Yeah. And a true friend is someone who really knows you and the only way they can know you, if they spend time together with you in real yeah. life, doing and experiencing real life together. So I, I love talking about this so much because it is so, so important, this friendship part. And when we removed um, video games from our home, our boys blossomed and they got so many friends. And this is why I just want to say this is such a big myth. 
Let's move on to the next one. Um, number four, it says, I want my child to be independent. So when she talks back to me and voices her own opinion about her screens, I see that as a sign of becoming independent. And I want to support that. Again, there's a big confusion here uh, among American parents. You do want your child to find their voice. Mm-hmm. So if my daughter says to me, Dad, I don't agree with you. I think you're mistaken. And here's why. I welcome that. I celebrate that. But I can tell you uh, families that I have counseled where the son says to the parents, you don't know what the f- you're talking about. That's out of bounds. Using swear words, uh, cursing the parents, that's out of bounds. Uh, and again, in that boy's defense, he's just using the same language that he encounters in his music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Cardi B had a number one hit song with WAP, which uses the F word, the N word, the A word. Uh, and that song was praised uh, coast to coast. And, and now she's got her own show, uh, which is, uh, you know, Cardi Tries, where uh, that's the name of the show that is also getting tremendous uh, rave reviews uh, that this woman is being held up as a role model who uses the F word continuously. So if a son uses that word to his parents, he's just speaking the way his role models talk. And the parent has no idea what their son's been watching on YouTube because I think good parenting means letting kids decide, the parent says. And so the kid's in his bedroom with headphones on watching this stuff on YouTube and using the same language to his parents. Well, that parent's been derelict. They need to step in. They need to limit what the kid is watching on YouTube. They need to teach kids, you never speak that way to your parents. And that's not what it means to be independent. That's not what it means to be independent. Okay, that's the confusion uh, that I encounter among Americans uh, more than anywhere else on the planet. I've spoken about this topic in England, Scotland, Germany, Italy, Spain, Australia, New Zealand. North Americans, Canadians and Americans think that the child talking back to the parent is developing their own voice, being independent, and they're not. They're just, mm. they're just being rude. And parents need to teach the kid the difference between finding your voice and being rude. It's not the same thing. And again, American parents will say things like, yeah, but being disruptive and being rude, isn't that part of being creative? And again, I devote a big chunk of one chapter of the collapse of parenting. No, it's not. It's not. In fact, it has correlated over the last 20 years with a collapse of, of creativity among American young people. Creativity does not being de- mean being defiant and being disrespectful. They're, they have nothing to do with each other. Uh, they're certainly not correlated, and I argue that, they, that there is a negative correlation, that the kid who is most defiant and most disrespectful is the least likely to be creative. You want to nurture your kid's voice. You want to encourage them to find their voice. And I talk at some length in the book about encouraging healthy debate respectful debate. And again, that's something that we as Americans are losing. You know, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, who were enemies in the public square, um, would get together for dinner and drinks, Mm -hmm. uh, that they could disagree passionately Mm -hmm. about policy, but they could still be friendly. Uh, We've basically lost that as a culture. You can't lose that in your family. You have to retain, you have to teach the ability 
to disagree respectfully. Again, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, kids could find examples in the public square uh, of famous people like Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, who were modeling that. We've lost that completely. We can no longer look to our uh, political leaders to model respectful disagreement. So we have to now teach that. The culture is no longer teaching it. On the contrary, the culture is teaching all the wrong lessons, which is that your opponent is your enemy and they must be destroyed. <laughs> you don't want to teach that in your family. No. There will be times that your, your adolescent will disagree with you. And you need to teach the right lesson, which American popular culture no longer teaches. You have to teach that we can disagree right. and still be friends. And it is part of becoming an independent young person. And I agree with that. But I also know that this misconception is laced with the idea that many parents have that they can prematurely mature their child. And, um, you know, the brain development just isn't there yet. The brain takes 25 years to get fully connected to that frontal cortex. So I think that's where we get some of the background for this. Oh, we want them to be independent sooner. This means they're going to be smarter and better and more competitive. And that's not what it, that, that doesn't correlate. That's right. Good parenting means doing the right thing at the right time. At the right time. Oh, I love that. Doing the right thing at the right time. 15-year-olds <laughs> are not adults. Uh, again, one of the points I stressed when you and I spoke re previously and which I stress in the book is that in our species, the kids are not adults until 25 years, which is extraordinary. Uh, it's longer than any other species on the planet. Uh, as I mentioned, horses are fully mature at four years of age, and horses are bigger animals than humans are. It's not a lot about biological maturity. It can't be because horses, as I said, are biologically mature at four years of age. But humans are not truly mature in brain development until 25 years of age. So your 15-year-old has a long way to go. They are not able to conceptualize the long-term consequences of their choices. That's what parents are for. That's right. part of our DNA. Yeah. And your 15-year-old needs you to set limits. And if you abandon that, uh, then you're not doing your 15-year-old any favor. Right. You're setting them up for failure. But Dr. Sachs, number five says, <laughs> the number five misconception I have here is, I just want my son to be happy. And let me just add to this. I remember this misconception so well because I remember feeling this. I just want my Adam, my oldest, to just be happy. So what's wrong with all this? And I know that I was confusing happiness with pleasure. And you talk about this a little bit in your your book about how the how the trip to the video game arcade, for example, um, used to be a pleasurable thing, but happiness is different than that. And in the importance of teaching our kids, you know, it's not the same. Pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness comes from fulfillment and from living up to your potential. And that the other thing in this myth or this misconception is that when, the, when your son is playing video games, it, it loses, what do you call it? it? It loses its its pleasure, right? So then you have to play more. So so talk about, just for a minute, what you would say to a parent who says, I just want my kid to be happy. I just want her to be happy. Uh, 
So it ties into another concept in the book, which is educating desire. If, again, researchers find if you let American teens do whatever they want, most boys want video games, most girls want social media. You need to educate your desire, uh, your child's desire. You have to teach them to want something better and deeper and more lasting than social media and video games. So I'm really blessed that my daughter has inherited from me my uh, love and, and interest in German language and German literature. Um, and so we study German together and we speak German together. And part of that is just work. I mean, learning German vocabulary and learning uh, the uh, uh, dative and accusative forms of the definite articles, you know, there's nothing particularly fun about that. But doing that work, going through that, on the other side, you come out with the pleasure that she and I, I can now converse in German, which we both mm -hmm. get a huge kick out of. <laughs> uh, and that's what I mean by educating desire. Uh, now, other things that I really enjoy, my daughter has not picked up. She doesn't love classical music the way I do. Mm -hmm. uh, you plant the seed and sometimes it sprouts. And sometimes it doesn't because each child is a unique individual. Uh, but again, the 15-year-old is not an adult. And if you let the 15-year-old decide how they're going to spend their free time and you have an educated desire, what you're going to end up with if you're like most Americans is a kid who's spending their free time with social media and video games. And their potential has not been fulfilled. It's your job as the parent to help your child fulfill, discover their potential and fulfill it. Yeah, and that's always more than just playing a video game <laughs> as far as fulfilling their potential. I mean, we just got to say, we just got, I, I just remember so clearly missing this point with my oldest. I wanted him to be happy. I wasn't thinking about the fact that he was just getting all this pleasure from playing, but he really wasn't happy. It didn't have long-term potential. Yeah, I also use the analogy of junk food. I just want her to be happy as an analog is she can eat whatever she wants, <laughs> whatever, whatever she tastes good. Right. Well, in that domain, most parents recognize that's insane. <laughs> if you let kids eat whatever they want, what a lot of kids will choose is pizza, french fries, potato chips, and ice cream. You know, marshmallows taste great, but they are not healthy. Right. Uh, you need to compel your kid to eat healthy uh, and save dessert for after they've eaten broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, spinach, asparagus, and kale. A lot of kids don't want to eat vegetables, but it's part of your job as the parent to say, hey, no, vet, no dessert till you eat your vegetables. And again, I devote a chapter of the book, The Collapse of Parenting, to again, how many parents are failing even on that most basic point mm -hmm. in this country. American kids are less well-nourished, less healthy, nutritionally, uh, than they were 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and part of that is because parents are failing in that most basic domain of no dessert until you eat your vegetables. But no dessert until you eat your vegetables has a corollary in other domains. No games until the chores are done. Mm -hmm. Educate desire. Mm -hmm. Pleasure is great, but pleasure can't be the first thing. It right. cannot be the primary objective. The primary objective has to go deeper, has to involve finding your potential and fulfilling your potential.
which has to be better than marshmallows and video games. Right. And, and uh, parents have a lot to learn, you know, with um, all the education around these things, especially as screens have taken over so much of our kids' free time. So let's go on to number um, six and seven here. We'll move through this pretty quickly. Number six is if I love my child, I must trust my child. Wow. (laughs) That turns on a confusion about the different kinds of love. Mm -hmm. There's one love that two adults have for one another. Uh, Two parents hopefully have for one another. The love between two adults. But that's different from the love a parent has for a child. And the rules are different. Love between two parents has to involve trust. And that uh, trust has to be uh, earned and it has to be respected. But it is not the job of the husband to teach the wife virtue or vice versa. uh, Because the love between two parents is a love between social equals. It is not the job of the wife to teach the husband right and wrong. He's supposed to know that by the time they enter into that relationship. But it is the job of the parent to teach the child right and wrong. Children are not born knowing right and wrong. They have to be taught. And if you don't teach them, they'll look to the internet. And what they find there is Cardi B and Miley Cyrus and Jojo Siwa who are teaching all the wrong lesson. So it's a parent's job to teach right and wrong. And because it is the parent's job to teach right and wrong, you have to enforce the rules. And assuming that your kid knows right and wrong is a dereliction of duty on your part as a parent. Yeah, you have to keep reminding your kid what is right and what is wrong. And you need to make it easy for your kid to stay on the right path by putting in guardrails and saying, uh, okay, Obviously, your school requires you to use these screens for your homework, but I'm going to be enforcing the rules, and you're going to be using the screen in the public place, uh, not in your bedroom, but in the kitchen, and I will not allow you to use social media sites or shopping sites when you're supposed to be doing your homework. And kids will sometimes respond, you don't trust me. Why can't I be in my bedroom with the door closed? Uh, You don't trust me. And the answer is, look, we're all immersed in a toxic culture. And I don't think it's reasonable to put that burden on you to stand up alone to that toxic culture. I'm going to be there to give you support. And again, this is not just my uh, rant. This is the official guideline of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is that there should be no unsupervised use of the Internet. Your school requires your kid to do their homework online. Fine but the device should be in a public space like the kitchen or the living room where there is no expectation of privacy. The internet is full of toxic stuff. And I'm not just talking about adult predators looking to you know, do awful things. I'm talking about the internet as it's commonly used. I'm talking about TikTok and Instagram as it's commonly used, is, is communicating the message that fame and wealth are the most important things. You need to limit your kid's exposure to that message because it's a toxic message. It's a message that leads to anxiety and depression. It's part of your role as a parent to limit your kid's exposure to the bad stuff. You know, and this is not new. 30 years ago, 50 years ago, you wouldn't have allowed your kid to walk 
into an X-rated bookshop. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't because you didn't trust your kid. It's because only a derelict parent would allow their 13-year-old son to walk into an X-rated bookshop. This was not controversial. Well, the bookshops are gone. Why? Because they're online. And any kid with a device can now access pornography much harsher than anything you would have found in Playboy or Penthouse 30 years ago. It's your job to make sure your son is not encountering it. Yeah, and I, I love this whole point about love versus trust because I feel like the analogy we use a lot in our material is that of a coach. And a, a coach wants their team to trust them. You know, a coach has to get that athlete to trust them that they are the, the coach is helping them with the right thing. And, and, and I think overall, I think it's really good for parents to have more of that approach. It's not my job to trust my child. It's my job for my child to trust me that I know what's best for them, that I'm setting these limits and I've got their back. And um, when you do this in the little things as they come through lower school and middle school, then it, it becomes very important in high school because then like what you said earlier about peer-oriented teens versus parent-oriented teens, this is where it comes, this is where you get the blessings from it because your children know, hey, I, I could maybe not agree with mom and dad and I really wanted all this stuff back when I was in middle school, but I really trust them now. I trust that they have my best in mind and they're doing this. And it takes a little bit of more maturity to figure that out. But I, I tell parents, don't worry so much about trusting them. You want them to trust you first. You want to set those um, standards and those those guardrails there pretty clear so they can do that. So the seventh misconception, the the last one here, is just one of my favorites because I, I do hear this and I feel that a lot of times when I'm talking to parents, even if they don't say it out loud, this is kind of what they're thinking that I'm worried that if I follow your advice that my child won't love me anymore. And, and I love the part in this part of the book where you were talking about the mom and I believe the girl's name was Abigail and Abigail was upset and she yelled at her mom and said, I hate you. I never want to talk yeah. to you again. And I think this is the fear of every parent. But then the mom turned and said, you know, to be honest, sometime I'm not that fond of you either. Yes. <laughs> and I just love, I mean, you have to kind of audience, you have to go back and read this part of the book. But I think we have this fear that if we are providing these boundaries that our kids aren't going to love us anymore. So talk about that a second. Yeah. So I also share a story of a girl who happened to be a very attractive girl who uh, her parents would not allow her to have social media. Parents would not allow her to go on a date unchaperoned. And she was absolutely furious with her parents. She would say, hey, my, my girlfriend had her boy over for the weekend when her parents were away, and you won't even let me go on a date without you coming along? This is total child abuse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to report you. And, and mom handed her the phone and said, go ahead. Uh, and, and her daughter said, I'm going to have to be in therapy probably for the rest of my life because of the way you guys are abusing me. This was a constant source of tension throughout the high school years because the parents were strict. They mm. were strict but loving. Uh, their son, incidentally, flourished with this. And he was, he was very popular. He was 
captain of the basketball team. And, and uh, he could have spent every evening with his friends, but he chose to spend his evening with his parents often playing board games with them or uh, golfing with his father. But so the, the, the boys seemed to be flourishing. The daughter hated it and was very hostile to her parents. And then she went to University of Virginia Charlottesville, where she, uh, these other girls would say, you know, do you think, do you think my post on Instagram is, is too skanky or, or maybe not skanky enough? Mm-hmm. You know, do you think I'm giving oral sex to too many boys? Maybe not, not, not enough boys. And she wanted to grab these girls and say, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Do you have no self-concept, no dignity? You only care what boys think? And she suddenly had this epiphany at the beginning of her sophomore year that, oh my goodness, I'm the only girl here who's not going to have to be in therapy Mm. for the rest of my life because Mm. of the way my parents raised me. So you have to do the right thing as a parent. Even if your kid pushes back, even if your kid says, I hate you, you're going to totally ruin my life. Mm-hmm. You have to do the right thing as a parent. Your kid does not know what is best. That's why they have parents. And they may not thank you right away. And hopefully they'll thank you 10 years down the road. And that, there's a great line from Mark Twain who said something like, when, my, when I was 13, I couldn't believe how stupid my dad was. And then five years later, I was amazed to find out how much he learned. A 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old is not competent to choose what is best. That's why they have parents. Yeah. And they will love you. And it is about the long game. And it's about sort of the championship game. It's not about all these little things along the way. But your your kids will love you. And they will love you more when you have boundaries and when you take the time like that mom did that you were talking about to to really invest in, in their kids' lives. They, they, they may love you more. There's no guarantee. Oh, and, you know, as a clinician, I've seen a lot of outcomes, Yeah, but they will honor and respect you more down mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's great wisdom in the Ten Commandments. There is no command to love your parents anywhere in Scripture. Mm-hmm. There is no command to love your parents. There's a command to honor your parents. And I think that makes a lot of sense. You cannot require your kids to love you. That's true. You can and you should require them to honor you and treat you with respect because that's the way our species is hardwired. Kids are hardwired to learn from their parents. That's why childhood and adolescence take so long. Mm -hmm. And it's your job to teach your kids right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, then you are derelict and you're increasing the risk of bad outcomes long-term. The first priority has to be teaching your kids right and wrong. You cannot make your kids' affection for you the first priority. It will, I hope, follow from doing the right thing. It usually does, not always. But that doesn't change the fact that your first obligation as a parent is to teach your kid right and wrong, even if it hurts. Well, those were our seven misconceptions. And I have a bonus one, Leonard, I have a bonus. So my bonus one today, number eight, I guess we could call it this misconception that having conversations with our kids is the way to fix the screen dilemma out there. Well, again, American parents are often confused. Uh, 
and they think if they persuade their child or put the evidence before their child, then their child will make the right decision. By all means, let your daughter know that the more time kids spend on social media like Instagram, the more likely they are to become depressed. You can absolutely share that research with them. But do not then let your kid decide how much time they're going to spend on social media. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do not assume that your 14-year-old is a rational adult because they're not. Uh, <laughs> 14-year-olds want to be liked. It matters to a 14-year-old. It matters immensely whether or not their peers like them or not. And all your evidence may not suffice. If your kid believes that being on Instagram is the way to be liked and the way to be popular, your evidence won't count. You must also limit and govern and guide what your kid is doing online. You know, we've got some fascinating uh, research that came out last year showing that spending a lot of time on social media predicts anxiety and depression down the road more powerfully than using heroin. Wow. Uh, and that's a, a stunning uh, finding, but it's true mm-hmm. that adolescents and young adults using heroin are very likely down the road to become anxious and depressed, but that correlation is actually less strong than the correlation of using social media. You wouldn't let your kid go out and experiment with heroin. You wouldn't say, I think good parenting means letting kids decide uh, because heroin's really dangerous and addictive and you don't want your kid to go down that dark spiral. You prohibit it. You say, I'm going to explain to you that heroin's really harmful, but I'm also going to do my darndest to make sure you have no access to it because that's my job as a parent. We have the same evidentiary basis or a comparable. I'm not suggesting that social media has the same harms as heroin. You can die from an overdose of heroin. Your life will end. Mm-hmm. That's not true of social media. Uh, you, you're not gonna, your heart will not stop beating if you spend too much time on social media. Uh, so the risks are different, but the risks of social media are very serious and very real. Yeah, by all means explain, but don't give in. Don't depend on that. And th- this is just reminding me of a research study I read on drugs and alcohol in teenagers. And there's something in, I think it's a government side about teenage alcohol and drug addiction. And they say that having conversations is a huge protective factor. In fact, it can decrease the odds by 50%. So this can really help your children not do drugs and alcohol. But the only way that these conversations work is when you are not allowing the addictive activity. So that falls right in line with what you just said. The conversations are very necessary. But they're not sufficient. But they're they're not the be all end all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really confusing for parents. And they think if I just tell them not to click here and do this and do that, they won't do it. And that's not the answer. Although we still need to have conversations, but we we shouldn't be allowing the addictive activity while we're telling them all the, you know, warnings about the addictive activity. Of course, it doesn't even make any sense to do that. So let's talk for just a few more minutes. We've got here um, chapter um, eight. You talked about teaching humility mm-hmm. and the, this, this whole thing about gratitude and humility being the two most important things you can teach your kids. And, and then you say the, the way that you do this 
drum roll, please, (laughs) is through chores and hard work. And I love this because it's so true. It seems so simple, but it's so powerful. Yeah. And and so many Americans, uh, again, so many parents are confused about this. Uh, And again, I'm not really blaming the parents. The the kids and the parents alike are immersed in this culture. American culture is all about uh, walking tall and standing proud. And Justin Bieber had a big hit song where he sings, I'm going to light up the sky like lightning and this world will belong to me. This world will belong to me. And that's the big hit song. And that's the culture that kids are immersed in. And, uh, and the culture of Cardi B and, and, uh, and The Rock. And it's all about being rich and famous. Mm-hmm. So one of the most robust findings in psychology in human psychology is that happiness equals reality minus expectation. American kids spending their free time on social media and YouTube are immersed in a culture that's all about puffing up their self-esteem. If you work hard enough, your dream will come true. You can be rich and famous. Cardi B was a stripper, but now she's incredibly rich and famous because that was her dream and, and she worked hard and now her dream has come true. Uh, so uh, doesn't matter what your background is. If you work hard enough, you'll be rich and famous. A couple problems with that. First of all, it's a lie. It's not true. I've seen many young people who work incredibly hard and fail. If your dream is to have 40 million followers on Instagram, like Jojo Siwa, your dream's probably not going to come true, no matter how hard you work, because it's not about how hard you work. And if your expectations are that I'm going to be rich and famous at the age of 20, the reality at the age of 20 is you're not rich and famous. Your happiness equals reality minus expectations. If your expectations are bloated and swollen, you're going to be miserable at the age of 20. And I've observed this firsthand as a clinician countless times. Humility, being interested in other people and what they're doing more than you're interested in yourself. Like any virtue, it doesn't come naturally. You have to work at it. But we now have very good longitudinal cohort studies showing that that's actually the best predictor of happiness. So I I think I talk in the book about this girl I knew at age 15 who thought she was gonna be the next great novelist. Her, Her English teacher when she was 15 had written on her story, you have a spark of the divine fire. And her English teacher told her, you're going to be the great American novelist. Well, I can tell you 10 years later, at age 25, this girl was absolutely miserable because she's written two novels, couldn't get an agent, couldn't get a publisher. Uh, And she's watching the Today Show, this other girl younger than her, who's now really famous with her novel. And she's, she's seething because her expectation was so puffed up. I'm the next great American novelist. Well, you're not, you know, Mm -hmm. sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because her parents and her teacher had bloated, had puffed up her self-esteem, the result was an absolutely miserable 25-year-old. Whereas if she had been humble and modest and more interested in other people, she might have been very happy. And again, this is not a guess. We have research, which I share in the book, showing that the kid who is 
humble at age 15 is the most likely to be happy at age 25. But again, American parents are confused. And during Q&A at one of my presentations for parents, uh, back before the pandemic when this was live, a mother said, I don't want to teach my daughter to be humble. I want her to go for it. You know, when that big job opportunity comes along, I want her to be to, to have a high self-esteem. I don't want her to be humble. And I said, Mom, with all due respect, you are confused. You're confusing being humble with being timid. Those are mm. not the same thing. They're almost opposites. And the virtue you want for your daughter is not high self-esteem. The virtue you're thinking of um, is courage. You want your daughter to have courage. Courage is a virtue. Courage means you know your shortcomings and your weaknesses and your failures and your inadequacies, and you find the strength to push forward anyhow. The virtue you want to teach your daughter is not pride, but courage. That's excellent. Thank you so much for that. So one last thing here as we move um, through our time, we've got in chapter nine, you talk about enjoying your kids and that's just a fun chapter to read. But let's end on, on chapter 10. The, th- the third, the three things that you talk about here is in the meaning of life, so to speak. And I want to end on this because this is such a great summary and just a recap of why we are caring so much about our kids childhood and why we are caring so much about what their influences are and why as parents it can be so exhausting but then why does this matter so much it's it's because you wrap it up here in this last chapter and i love these three things i'm going to i'm going to let you tell us what they are the point i'm trying to make in that chapter is that one of your jobs as a parent is to give your child, impart to your child, your understanding of the big picture. What is most important? Why are we here? What is the meaning of human life? You must do this explicitly because if you don't, your kid will will turn to the culture. And if they're immersed in, in YouTube and American popular culture, the message they'll get there is that the most important thing is to be famous and wealthy. But then other parents will say, oh no, my child's much better than that. Uh, my child wants to go to Princeton, wants to go to MIT, wants to go to Stanford. And they're, they're, they're not looking at YouTube. They're not looking at Instagram. They're working hard because their number one goal is to go to MIT. And they're just single-minded in pursuit of that. And I try to explain to that parent, no, that can't be the meaning of life. It won't satisfy. I was speaking at Shore, a boys' school in... Uh, Sydney, Australia. And I spent two days at that school and I was talking to the head of school. He knew that I would be meeting with the boys and doing this kind of Socratic back and forth. And he said, he said, I want you to ask the boys the question. I want you to ask me the questions you're going to ask the boys. So I, I said, okay, what's the point of school? Again, when, when you ask American high school kids, what's the point of school? They will say, especially at, at uh, high rank schools, they'll say to get into a good college. And then I'll ask them, what's the point of going to college? They'll say to get a good job. And, and what's, what's the point of getting a good job, I'll ask. And they'll say to have lots of money. And then I'll say, what, what do you need lots of money for? They'll say to have fun. <laughs> Duh, you know, who yeah. brought this guy here? These <laughs> questions are so obvious. Yeah. So Dr. Wright wanted me to ask him the questions that I was going to ask the boys. So I said, all right, what's the point of school? 
And he said, without hesitation, he said, school is preparation for life. It's not about getting into university. It's preparation for life. So then I answered him as I would have answered a boy who said that. I said, what's the point of life? What's, what's the purpose of, of human life? And again, he answered without hesitation. He said, the meaning of human life is threefold. Meaningful work, a person to love, and a cause to embrace. That was his answer. When I speak to parents, I say, I'm not saying that Dr. Wright is the guru. You don't have to accept his answer, but you have to have an answer. <laughs> That's what an answer feels like. That answer has substance. You, as the parent, you better have your own answer. But getting into MIT is not an answer. Being an investment banker is not an answer. Those answers will not satisfy, which is a, a shorthand way of saying we've got lots of good longitudinal cohort studies and research showing that the person earning 600000 a year is no happier than the person earning 40000 a year. That's a fact. So if your goal in life is to earn a lot of money, when you achieve that goal, you will despair because you will not be happy. And you will realize that you have set your sights on the wrong objective. Uh, and I, you know, as a physician, I, I, can, I can think of a surgeon I know who earns upward of 800,000 a year and he's absolutely miserable. Absolutely miserable because he's got a big mortgage, a lot of kids going to expensive schools and he hates his work. He doesn't like it anymore. He thought he would, but he says, I'm working 80 hours a week. I'm a slave. If I'm, I'm working 80 hours a week at a job I no longer like, but I can't get out because I've got all these financial obligations I have no other way of meeting, I'm a slave. I'm working 80 hours, of work, 80 hours a week at a job I now hate. Well, he didn't do the work of an adolescent. He thought that being a rich doctor would bring him happiness because his parents told him that, and he was raised in a culture that told him that. And it was a lie. He didn't do the work of adolescence. The job of the adolescent is to figure out, who am I? What do I really want? What would give my life meaning? And if, if you accept an easy answer, like being a rich doctor will make me happy, bzz, wrong. When you find out it's wrong, it's too late. Well, and sitting on video games and social media all day certainly is not the meaning of life yeah. either. Um, and that doesn't bring you that core happiness that you're talking about or that core purpose in your life. So Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for your wealth of knowledge. Again, today we, the time just flies by and we are so thrilled to have you back with us. And we're looking forward to concluding our book of the month, which is the collapse of parenting this month at screen strong. But before we wrap up today, can you just share one, um, one more thing to the parent out there who's listening, who has found us because they're struggling with this basic, sure. um, you know, screens and kid problem in their home. And we have teenagers, maybe, maybe they just have middle school kids that are really starting to hit their, their hot button on this issue. What's one last thing you can share with them for encouragement? Find something fun to do with your kids. I mean, so much of our conversation has been negative, limit, govern, guide, turn off the screens. Find something fun to do with your kids. My daughter discovered 
that she loves Star Wars. And we have now watched the nine Star Wars movies as well as Rogue One, and we love them. My wife hates them, refuses <laughs> to watch them. Uh, but uh, we really like them, and uh, she loves talking about them with her cousins, who are also big Star Wars fans. Find fun things to do with your kids. And could be watching movie, could be hiking, could be making music, could be studying German together. Find fun things to do with your kids. That's got to be the foundation of your relationship with your kid is doing fun stuff together. And then saying no is easy because your kid wants to please you because you have fun together. You've got to find fun things to do with your kid. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is the perfect answer. <laughs> Thank you for giving us the perfect answer with my um, four. I know that th it works so well and we are having so much more fun with our younger kids because they're just not glued to their screen all the time. So it leaves this, this time and these memories that we get to make with them. And the one thing that we can offer to people listening because you may be wondering, how the heck do I do this? Look at our Screen Strong Challenge. Dr. Sachs, you've looked through that yourself. Just this is a, a week off. It's just sort of a jump start to help parents take that first step because it takes, um, it's going to take more than a week, but the week is just a, a prep time for you to put screens away and start having more fun with your kids. That is our first step to make changes in your home and to start offering more time and more ideas to be positive. So Leonard, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you. Thanks again. And thanks to everyone for listening. Head over to our website to learn more about our Screen Strong Challenge that we've just been talking about a little bit and make sure that you join our Screen Strong Families Facebook group. Also, don't forget to visit our donate page. And we can't do this without the generous support of um, donors just like you. So remember, we've got your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd and stay strong. <laughs>